Lord, I do thank you for your word that you've given it to us. Uh, Most importantly, Lord, as a love letter to show us how much you love us. You show us your plan throughout history and that you had each one of us in mind uh, when you died on that cross. Lord, as we read your word now, we know that there are those who would try to steer our thoughts and minds away from you and take us away from your truth. Help us to understand uh, how to identify those things and help us to grow closer to you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. First off, we all know that I start with one of my children's jokes. Christian has given me three. What happens when two bullets get married? They have a BB. What do you call a bear with no teeth? A gummy bear. (laughs) And his last one, why did Captain Hook cross the road? To get to the second-hand store. (laughs) Okay. I thought those were pretty good. (laughs) Okay, so Book of Jude. This is... I guess it sounds kind of weird. It, this book is dealing with uh, identifying false teaching and false, uh, false teachers as a whole, but it's also one of my, my favorite books. It has a lot of little quirks in it that are fun, um, but it serves as a warning. And, you know, I remember during one of Pastor Bill's home fellowships, and he asked us if we were part of the body and comparing it to the body of Christ, which part of the body would we be? Would we be the hand? Are we the servant? Would we be the foot? Are we going to evangelize? Or what, what part would we be? You know, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, I'm the liver. I like to purge out those things that are wrong. I don't, I don't like false teaching in the body. And, and so, you know, those things irk me. And that's probably why this is one of my more favorite books. It's a, the, one of the smaller books in the New Testament. It's only 25 verses, one chapter. And with that, let's uh, start with verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Jude is the English version of the name Judas. Judas is the Greek form of the Hebrew Judah. So the author of the epistle is actually named after Judah, the fourth son of Jacob in the book of Genesis. So in order not to confuse him with the traitor Judas, because that has a negative connotation, because I'm pretty sure no one names their kid that anymore. But in order to avoid that, they just shortened it to Jude. And no one thinks anything else of it. Now, while Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, he is in fact the half-brother of Jesus. He's mentioned in Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3, where he is actually referred to as Judas there. He's one of two half-brothers of Jesus who wrote an epistle. James is the other one. Now, I don't know what it would be like to be the half-brother of Jesus. I'm sure when they were younger, they looked up to him in some sense when they were small children. I remember when I had little brothers, they didn't call me by my name. What they did is they called me Bryant Brother. And so every time they'd come knock on my bedroom door, it was... Brian, brother, can you come do this with me? Brian, brother, can you come do this with me? And we had a running joke when they were little that we were going to grow up and start a private investigative company called 
Bryant and Bryant, just like Simon and Simon, which obviously that never happened. But that was our joke when they were little. But I imagine that when they were little, they looked up to him. He was the oldest. Now, we don't know the age gap, but nearly all little children, little brothers and sisters look up to their older ones. Uh, when we were hiking Monday, I think it was, we went up to Santa Isabel Preserve, and Charity, who's the youngest, she gravitates towards Mariah, and she gravitates towards Christian. They're the two oldest, and while Mariah carried her part of the time, Christian gave her a piggyback ride the other part of the time. So she gravitated towards those two. She kind of rejects the other ones offhand. Um, she'll get, she'll, she still loves them. She just doesn't want to be held by him. But I imagine that's what it would be like. Now, again, this is my speculation, but given observation and my own experience, that's probably what happened. Now, eventually when they got older and Jesus claimed that he was Messiah, they're like, oh, gosh, this wasn't the kid we grew up with. Now he's crazy. So they kind of were like, okay, this is weird. But it wasn't until after the resurrection where we see that they actually did get saved and they placed their faith in their half-brother. And we can see them in Acts 1.14 where the 12 are waiting. Uh, they're praying with over 100 uh, followers of Jesus at the time. And it says specifically that it included the Lord's brothers. A few other things we know about Jude is that according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, it says the Lord's brothers were married and it makes implication that they were traveling evangelists. Not James, obviously, he was the main leader in Jerusalem, but a lot of them were traveling evangelists. We also know, not from the Bible, but from early church history, Eusebius, the church historian from the 4th century, quoted a historian who was around earlier named Hegesippus. Hegesippus said that Jude had sons and grandsons. Now, these sons, during the time, I'm sorry, grandsons, during the time of the emperor Domitian, was fearing an uprising from the Jews. And because they're actually from the house of David, the royal family, he figured, okay, well, these people are probably going to rise up against me. So he took all the grandsons and brought them to Rome at the judgment seat. Their defense, however, was they said, Emperor, your highness, look at our hands. They're all calloused. We're all farmers. We have no intention of leading a rebellion. And basically with that, they said, we're not insiders of rebellion. We just, you know, we plow the field. He let them all go. And Hegesippus says they were released and they lived into the second century. That's uh, the little bit we know from secular history. Now, there's some debate, but... From what I can tell, the general consensus is that this letter was written around 67 or 68 A.D. You're going to find people who say it's as late as the 90s and stuff like that. But generally, that's the date. The next part of the verse, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So in writing this epistle, if you look at it closely, and I, I've, again, I've read this book many times and I missed it up until I was studying for this, is Jude speaks in threes. He speaks in triads. Uh, when he's talking about his examples, his descriptions, his characteristics of people. So when you look at it, it says in the next verse, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And that's considered the first triad in the book. Now, I'm sorry, I, that's the second triad. I jumped the gun. <laughs> The first of these triads is actually speaking of the Trinity. It's a description of 
what it means to be saved. Uh, to those who have been called, to those who are loved, and to those kept for Christ Jesus. Now, to those who have been called, all of us have been called by Christ. Everyone in the world, I believe, has been called by God. But the person has to be willing to accept God. It's like God knocking at the door. Someone has to answer the door. It's like the phone ringing. You know, my cell phone, I almost never pick up my cell phone. I'll pick it up for my wife, and I'll generally pick it up for my mother. Everybody else can leave a message, and I'll decide if it's important enough to get back to. Jesus, it's like him calling. You can look at him, and you know what? The Spirit ministers to each person's heart. He touches the heart. The person knows that God is knocking, but the person can see it. That's Jesus on the other end. They can either choose to pick up, or they can choose to let it go to voicemail. And the longer that the person pushes away answering that call to God, the harder their heart gets, unfortunately. But that is their choice. God allows freedom of choice. Now it says, beloved of God. In some versions it says sanctified. That's not the actual translation of the Greek. We are sanctified. We are set apart for God's use. And usually when they do use that word sanctified in the New Testament, it's a callback to the tools used in the sacrificial uh, system in the Old Testament. All those tools were sprinkled with blood and sanctified and set apart for the use in the temple. So sanctified is we are also sprinkled with the blood of Christ, covered with it. Now we are set apart for his use. That's not the actual word here. The actual word is agapeo, which is beloved. We are beloved by God. We have accepted him. Now God, again, loves everybody, but... Those who become of the household of faith experience that. Those who are outside don't. Now, the next one is kept, or New King James says, preserved in Christ Jesus. And the Greek is tereo, which literally means to guard. Jesus is our guardian. Now, if you look at John 10, 28 and 29, it says, this is Jesus speaking, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He's our guardian. We are protected in his hands. Once you call Christ Lord, once you follow him and you've given your life to him, you're, you may experience trial, but you're not going to experience anything he doesn't want you to to help you grow. But he's kept you safe. Your salvation is preserved. Now, verse 2 is the second triad which I jumped the gun with earlier. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now, Paul's typical greetings in his books, and I believe Peter's too, are grace and peace. Now, Jude goes with mercy, peace, and love. So when you get grace and peace, and one is a typical Hebrew greeting, one of them is a typical uh, Greek greeting, but when you put them together, what you really get is until you experience the grace of God, which is getting what you don't deserve. You can't experience the peace that God gives you. Because before we accepted Christ, we are at war with God. We are enemies. And it says that specifically several times. I should have written down a reference. But we're enemies of God before we come to Christ. But we get to experience that peace, that reconciliation, once we accept the grace of God. Now Jude says, mercy, peace, and love. And it's very similar. Accept from getting God's mercy, which is us not getting what we deserve, which is hell, again, we can't have that peace. There is no peace knowing that you're going to spend eternity in hell. 
And not only that, once you experience God's mercy and his grace and his peace, you know what the love that he multiplied unto you is. He multiplied his love by sending his son to die on the cross. And that love gets multiplied in each blessing that he gives us. Now, he promises food and clothing, and that's it. He doesn't promise us big houses, but he gives them. He doesn't promise cars, but he gives them. All these different things that we have, he doesn't promise them. But he says, you know what, I love you. And to some people, I'm going to give these things. Other people, I'm going to give these things. Poor people, they still experience God's love and multiplication because it says they have a greater faith in the book of James chapter 2. So God's love is multiplied to us in many ways, not just spiritual ones. Now, verse 3, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So what was the purpose of the letter? Originally, he was going to discuss soteriology. Soteriology is the fancy way of saying the study of salvation. He was going to discuss with them about the salvation. But he noted the circumstances of the times. He wanted to encourage them to contend for their faith instead, to fight for it. Now, if you look at the book of 2 Peter, you'll notice a lot of, if you read them both, there's a lot of parallels between Jude and 2 Peter. Jude actually quotes 2 Peter 15 times in just 25 chapters. Peter is warning in 2 Peter that there are false teachers that are going to come in, as in it's a future tense. Jude is saying, they're here. Now, if you've seen Poltergeist, and that little blonde girl, and she's all, they're here, that's what he's saying. They're here, the, the false teachers are here. Now, he's telling them, I want you to contend. Now, I've mentioned this before, but contend is the Greek word ep- agonizai. It's where we get the word agonize. And again, it pictures an athlete who is struggling, fighting for that finish. You imagine a marathon runner, and you've seen, you know, uh, what's his name? Michael Johnson, I think, in 92 Olympics. He was straining in his sprints, and you could see like his muscles were straining and everything, and that's the picture that they're showing. But the word contend is a verb, and it's translated what's known as the Greek present infinitive. What that means, that's a fancy way of saying the struggle is always continuous. You're never going to get out of the struggle. You should always be contending, fighting for the faith, always looking for some way to defend it or to live it properly. It's not going to stop until we go to heaven. Now, one reason we contend for the faith is it's valuable. If you walk into an art gallery and there are no guards, there's no sort of security system, you're going to probably draw the conclusion that, well, there's nothing in here worth stealing. There's nobody even guarding it. But that's not what our faith is. It is something very well worth guarding. In fact, in all of the earth, it's probably the only thing really worth defending. In fact, most of the people who were martyred and sent to their their deaths, they didn't care about any of the things of the world. What they cared about was their faith to the point where they did not want to deny it. Many were burned at the stake. There's many in the Middle East still who are beheaded for it. I was reading an article. It was, what was it? They were talking about the, no, it wasn't an article. It was a Prager University video. They were talking about the plurif, plurif, I can't say the word, proliferation of Muslim atrocities in the Christian nations from the early 80s until now. And 
how the Coptic churches, the ones in Egypt, where they were plentiful more or less in the early 80s, they're almost completely gone now, with the churches being burned, the people being put under what's known as a demi-tax or an um, infidel tax. And everyone who could move out of Egypt moved out. Everyone who couldn't had, had to stay and endure the, the torture. But it's a valuable faith. It's worth defending. There's nothing else that is. Now, contending has two points to it. The first of those is defensive. It's knowing how to defend your faith and understanding what you believe. Uh, there's actually two books out that are very old, but they're very good still. One is called Know What You Believe. And the other one's called Know Why You Believe. The, the author's name is Paul Little. But it's very good at pointing out the basics of what you believe, what the Bible teaches, and also uh, how to defend your faith against certain arguments. Now, the defensiveness allows us to stand up to false teaching that arises and squelch its influence in not just our lives, but others who may be more susceptible, people who maybe aren't as familiar with the word as we are. It also makes it easier to pass out tracts to people when someone says, oh, I don't believe that. Well, why don't you believe it? And then you can open a dialogue with them and kind of explain where you're coming from. You get to study to show yourself approved, and that's how you can answer the questions about your faith. Now, offensively, you defend your faith by living it out. Now, we contend for the faith practi practically when we can live our lives in an uncompromising way. It's one thing to know all the answers about your faith, but it's also another matter if your life doesn't back it up. Now, it can delegitimize your faith to others. It could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be your coworkers. I have an example of this. In fact, it just happened last week, I believe. Or maybe it was to me. But what happened was, I was at work, and, you know, I understand why rules are put in place to keep people safe and all that, but you know what? I really hate rules overall. And so when they bring up a new one, I'm like, really, you're going to give me another rule? I have enough, to, I have enough challenge doing the job already, and you just add something else in that takes more, you know, this is my mind talking. Um, so the person at the back desk, this is in the morning before we opened, was saying, hey, Eric, I just want to let you know, so-and-so said that from now on we have to do this this way because it's safer because of the driver, forklift driver because this. She's telling me this. And the, my first response was not, okay, which is what it should have been. It should have been that and nothing else. It was something I can't, I didn't cuss or anything. I was very frustrated and I basically let out a long monologue about why I thought the rule was stupid and I shouldn't have to do it. And that was in front of about 10 people. Half of who knew I was Christians a Christian. And I left and I kind of walked off and did more of my job that morning. And later on in the morning, when my, I had calmed down, I kind of felt God's finger going, you, what did you do? And he, I didn't have to think about it. I knew exactly what I did. And so I had to go back and the only person I could find was the main person who told me the rule. And I had to go and apologize to her. And explain why it was a bad representation of my faith. And she's actually a Christian too. Um, but there were non-Christians around. So I'd explain it to her and, you know, she forgave me. She, she wasn't really worried about it. It was me who was like, okay, I, I screwed that up big time. But that's one way where I messed up, where my life didn't back up the actions I purport to follow. It says in Hebrews 12, 14, 
Let me get there real quick. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, holiness is also where we get the word sanctified and set apart. It's a derivative of that word. And holiness is set apart. So if we are pursuing peace with all men, it means we're not seeking after frivolous arguments, and we're seeking and we're holy, and we're living set-apart lives for Christ, if we do those two things, people are going to see the Lord. If we're not doing those things and we're being divisive and we're not living uncompromising lives like we should, no one's going to see the Lord. That's what the verse is saying. So to live our or contend for our faith offensively, we need to make sure we're living practically, practical, holy lives that others can see. And it's also important to remember that Jude isn't just speaking to pastors and evangelists and missionaries. He's speaking to every single person who claims Christ as Savior. He's speaking as much to Sunday school teachers or home group leaders, to people who are just in a regular job, uh, from people who work at 7-Eleven to Microsoft. No matter what your position, that's your job. Now, I have another example of contending, and this isn't, this isn't, isn't to uh, accuse anybody because I thought about it while I was doing the same action. I was sitting watching television with my kids, which I do a lot of times because that's what they enjoy. They like to sit and have me watch TV with them. And one time we were watching, um, what was it called? Star Wars Clone Wars. If you know what that is, it's an animated offshoot of Star Wars. And we binge-watched it. We would watch, and they're only 25-minute episodes, but sometimes we'd watch five or six episodes in one shot. And we did that for six seasons. Over the course of, I think, three weeks, we watched everything. Now, it's not wrong to binge-watch television. The problem is it doesn't actually produce any spiritual fruit in your life. Now, with that, we have to ask ourselves, when was the last time we binge-read the Bible? Now, it seems easy to binge-watch TV because the brain doesn't always have to think about anything. And actually, the glowing screen affects the pleasure center of the brain, so when you tear yourself away from the screen, it actually is kind of like, oh, I really want that. It's almost like a, a drug. But again, what about binge-reading? Someone could say, well, I read slow because I don't want to miss anything, and that is a very legitimate answer for careful study of the Word. And you should be carefully studying the Word. Because you don't want to miss anything. You want to make sure you get every aspect. But the problem is, even when you're watching a movie, when you watch it the first time, you don't get every detail, do you? I know I don't. I'm hoping I'm not the only person in here who's watched a movie twice. I've watched some movies multiple times. But I was reading an article, and the article was, Details Placed in Movies by Directors That You Didn't Even Realize. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me read that, because that sounds like something I'd read. And the article, the, the one example I'm going to give you was, in the movie Jaws, it's about them hunting a great white shark, obviously, who's terrorizing the coast of some New England town I can't remember the name of. I, I don't remember that detail. But the name of the boat was the only natural predator of the great white shark besides a man. Does anybody remember what the name of the boat was? It was the orca. 
Now, that was a detail he put in there that I was like, oh, that's interesting. And this article had 20 other examples of that. And I was like, oh, you know, I like those little tidbits. Um, but it's the same thing with Scripture. You should be studying it slow. You should be trying to make sure you don't miss anything, grab everything that God has for you. But at the same time, you can read long stretches of Scripture at a time. You're not going to, I mean, if you study it, you're still going to miss stuff. If you, read, if you binge seven chapters a day, you're going to miss stuff, but you're going to get the overall picture still. And some people have said when they read it in great lengths, a lot of times when they read shorter, shorter chapters, like maybe one or two, sometimes they miss the context as a whole of the next chapters. And this is people who, uh, you know, big theologians are like, you know, I got a much clearer picture when I binge read the scripture. They didn't use that word. But it's the same thing. And my point in all this is just to make sure that we are contending. You can binge watch, but if you've never read the entire New Testament or even the entire Bible in your devotions, try binge reading it in addition to studying it. It's very useful. I've, I've done it several times, and it gives you a greater picture of what's actually going on. Now, when you think about that. Just consider which one is actually going to produce some more fruit in your life. You can binge watch things. And I honestly, I still do with my kids. I just did this week, but it's not going to produce any fruit as much as reading through scripture. will. next question I have, are we contending for the faith? Are we attending church or are we just pretending as a whole? Now, I don't think anybody in here is pretending. Pretending, those who are pretenders, those are the false teachers that he'd be talking about. Those who are attending would be those who, you know, they come to church, but they're not involved. Now, I don't, this church is pretty involved. But it's up to us to know the three parts of, the three possibilities, so that when we go out and meet other Christians, we can encourage them to contend, contend, and not just attend. Now, he speaks of the faith here. And the faith is that word. It's in the definite article. So it's speaking of something specific. It's speaking of the faith. It is the teaching that is taught by Jesus in the Gospels. It's dispensed by the apostles in the book of Acts. And it's elaborated and explained in all the epistles. And that's our faith. It has many facets, but it's based on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the nutshell that it is, and that expands into all these wonderful things that God explains to us in Scripture. Now, in this day and age, and unfortunately, there are some people who believe in the phrase, I believe in the faith that is in my heart, instead of the faith that was entrusted to God's people. Now, there's an example that I have. There was a book written called Habits of the Heart. The author and his colleagues wrote about an interview with a young nurse. Her name was Sheila Larson. And she was the representation of many people they had interviewed who described their American experience on views of religion. Speaking about her own faith and how it operated in her life, she said, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. It's just my own little voice. That's wrong. It's not our 
individual faith. It's not what we choose to pick and choose out of the Bible. It's what the Bible says we should be doing. It's exactly what the Bible says we should be doing. Christianity is based on one faith that was delivered to the saints. And exactly as I said it, what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught in the New, New Testament or in the book of Acts, and what they explain in the epistles. Now, this person, unfortunately, it's prolific in our day and age because people, they're not Christians. Or they'll, I've, I've seen friends on my Facebook page change their status from Christian to spiritual before. Or they'll change it from Christian to, I'm trying to think how she put it. She put it, uh, not evangelical, not bigoted, not hating Christian or something weird. It, it, was, it was odd. But people like to describe themselves in ways, they're like, well, I don't like that because that's offensive to me. Well, it doesn't matter that you're, it's offensive to you. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are offensive. The person who gets up and teaches the Bible, they're not writing the mail. They're just delivering it. That's what it is. God wrote it. We're just the mailman. Now, I mentioned already it was false teachers. But what was happening that they needed to step up for their faith? It was the false teachers, which are described in verse 4 for us. It says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. I didn't write this down, but if you look at the grammar in the Greek for this phrase, it's not super clear here as well, but it connects Jesus Christ and God in the same sentence as if they're the same person because they are. And this could actually be used as a verse for deity as well. You just have to explain the Greek grammar to somebody. Now, he did it. He wrote the book or epistle because of certain individuals who slipped in secretly. The Greek phrase for this, secretly slipped in, or in my New King James says, crept in unnoticed. It means to sneak in by the back door. It means they didn't come in the church through the front door where everybody comes in. They may have tried to pick the lock on the side of the church and come in that way. They snuck in. They don't want their deeds to be known. They don't want people to know who they are, but they snuck in. Now, in John 10, when Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd, he says there's some people who are going to try to sneak into the sheepfold and take the sheep or steal the sheep. And this is disciples of Satan is who these false teachers are. And I want to clarify something, too. There is, there is false teaching and there is teaching that is in error. False teaching is going to drag someone away from Christ. Error is something that is not salvation-oriented, but is not necessarily correct. And some error is going to be, you know, our gray area disagreements on end times things and things like that. They're not big deals. And on all honesty, we should be focusing on the things that unite us, but at the same time, we should be able to dialogue with each other. Calvary Chapel should be able to dialogue with the Presbyterian Church down the street about why we believe what we believe about the end times. And we should be able to willingly listen to each other about why we believe it. And at the end of the conversation, we should be able to say, no, I don't believe you. Or I don't believe what you're teaching. I see where you're coming from, but I'm coming from this direction. But you know what? You're saved. That's good enough for me. We're still brothers. And that's what it should be. Unfortunately, it's not. There's a lot of inner conflict, unfortunately. Now, 
There are three descriptions of these individuals. This is the third triad or group of three that he uses. Now, the first is their condemnation was written about long ago. Throughout the Old Testament, God's impending judgment on unbelievers has been written. And I didn't even pick a specific verse because after God judged the people after the flood, you can go into almost every prophetic book and he's talking about a future judgment that's going to happen, a future judgment that hasn't even happened for us yet. So that condemnation was written about long ago. You can look through the Old Testament to find it. Now, the second is that they are ungodly men. This isn't Christians behaving in a way that's not acceptable. This is unbelievers who are ungodly men. They have no part of God. And the sin of these ungodly men or these unbelievers is that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. There's four different translations that I brought this word. Licentiousness is one, lasciviousness, lewdness, Another version said license for immorality. Essentially, they're turning God's grace into an excuse to practice immorality. Uh, a common phrase with someone in this mindset would be, well, it's okay if I do this, God's going to forgive me. That's not the right mindset. Yes, God will forgive us. We have to be repentant and we have to confess that what we've done is wrong and God will forgive us, but that's not an excuse to sin. In fact, it says in Romans 6, 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Three, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ, which means they deny the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, there are basics to the Christian faith. And again, Almost all denominations that I'm aware of believe these basics. They are that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was a deity, and that he lived a sinless life. And there are other things that you can add to that, but those basics about who Jesus was, his personhood, Presbyterians believe that. Episcopals believe that. Calvary Chapel believes that. You know, any denomination you can think of that's legitimately following Christ believes that. Now, when you deny the work of Christ, you deny the work of salvation that he provided for us on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. Because without the resurrection, we're still dead in our sins. Now, when you look at these two things, there, every time I read this, there's two groups that come into mind all the time. And on Thursday, we briefly talked about one of them, and it was the Jehovah Witnesses. The Jehovah Witnesses, they, they essentially deny all these things. Uh, Mormons deny some of them as well and even resort to uh, polytheism in some cases. But there's other groups that deny these things as well. But you can deny these things. There are people in the church who are not part of these offset cults who they don't realize what it actually is to be a Christian. Now, in this church which is one of the reasons my wife and I love this church, is that we know everybody. And if we don't know you well enough yet, please come harass us. We'd be happy to know you better. But, you know, everybody is involved with each other. Everybody loves to go to picnics and baptisms and church funk or Christmas thing, everything together. And that's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be united in that way. Now, 
forget where I was going with that, but we love you guys. Anyway, <laughs> um, I guess I'll just move on to verse 5. I know where I was going with it. Because, because we are like that as a church, we can hold each other accountable. And hopefully we're doing it in a way that's gentle and loving uh, and showing love in that way. Because we can say, you know, I don't understand why you believe that. Could you explain it to me? I remember Pastor Bo bringing up before, um, this isn't like a huge issue. It was just interesting, you know, who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. And I honestly, I love that question. And, you know, I've seen several documentaries. I've read several different books on it. And it's a fascinating question. And it's one that we could use to just talk about it and maybe sharpen each other a little bit, just curious about how history lines up with the Bible and things like that. But it's an interesting question. Now, there's even more serious questions than that that you could discuss, and it's just holding each other accountable and talking to each other and sharpening each other. It says in, I think it's 27.17 of Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friends. We sharpen each other when we keep each other accountable and when we keep each other out of false doctrine that can come into the church. We protect each other. Just as Jesus has kept us and preserved our salvation, we can help preserve each other from false teaching that comes in. Verses 5 through 7. Though you already knew this, or though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. Now in these verses we have the fourth, fourth triad he mentions in this letter. They are three examples from history on how God judges sin. And we saw in verse 4 that the condemnation of these false teachers is future. Here, God reassures that he knows how to deal with them because he has dealt with them in the past. So the first example, Jude is reminding us of what happened in Numbers chapter 14. God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. They went out of Egypt, and without unintended delays, they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is on the threshold of the promised land. But at Kadesh Barnea the people refused to trust God and go into the promised land of Canaan. And instead, they decided to wander the wilderness for 40 years, where all but two died as a result. So after God brought Israel out of Egypt, you have to think of everything miraculous that they experienced. It was, you know, the 10 plagues they saw, the Red Sea opened, the manna provided, the water provided from the rock, all these different things, the quail, All these things, God said, okay, here you go. They saw everything. They saw all of these things. These things are, I mean, I would love to see anything like that. Not that I'd be better than them. I'd probably do the same thing. But through all his care and provision, Israel still displayed a part of unbelief when God said, okay, it's time to go into the promised land. I'm going to be with you. They said, no, that's okay. We don't want to do that. Now, I, I want to clarify that I believe there's two sets of unbelievers here. There were genuine people of faith in Israel who showed unbelief in some of the things that God had said. Because 
of this, they were not allowed to enter the promised land. And if you remember, even Moses was not allowed to enter. Uh, in Numbers twenty twelve, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So even Moses, in a moment of unbelief, suffered the consequences for it. However, I don't believe Jude is referring to those people. Jude is referring to those people who never believed in the first place. Now, there were people in Israel who left with Israel out of Egypt, not because they had any faith in God, but because they were following the crowd. Even some Egyptians followed the crowd to follow the crowd. Some of them followed from genuine faith. There's a couple of examples of that in Scripture. But unfortunately, these unbelievers influenced the genuine believers, and that influence kept them out of the promised land. And this is just one more great picture of why you should contend for the faith and what you believe, because you don't want to be influenced by those people. These unbelievers influence these believers into a state of unbelief in God's promises, and they suffered for it. They didn't get to see what God's blessings are were for them at the time. So those who had no faith from the beginning when they left Egypt, God is referring here to that they were destroyed, not just physically, but they were destroyed spiritually. They had no spiritual life. Now, those of genuine faith, including Moses, they suffered from bouts of unbelief, but they only destroyed or died in a physical sense, and that they died in the wilderness, and they lost the blessings they would have received. Now, the second example, there's debate about this in theological circles, but I, I think this verse actually helps clarify um, in Genesis 6 where this is talking about. Now, this example has to do with angels or sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6. Now, Jude makes three points about them. Now, before I get to those, the two primary views about the angels in Genesis 6 are that they are actually literally angels, sons of God, or that they are sons of Seth, which is a godly line. And the other view is that the daughters of men were the ungodly line of uh, Cain, I believe it was. I don't find strength in Scripture to support that, support that latter view. I don't believe the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, and I don't believe the daughters of men are the ungodly line of Cain. Uh, for a couple reasons. One is, it says the offspring were men of renown, great people. And if you look at the Septuagint, when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, the, men of, the word they used in the Greek for men of renown was titanos, which is where the Greeks get their words titans. Now, in Greek mythology, the titans were great giants of men. They were, they were gods. They were demigods. And so what they're implying is, in the scripture, is that these were some weird hybrid of God and man, essentially, is what it is. And so that's, that's one of the main reasons I believe that. The other reason is every other place you see sons of God in Scripture, it's talking about angels. So why would we take this verse and say, no, I don't like that. Let's go to this. I could be wrong. I don't think so, but I could be wrong. And I'm willing, again, this is one of those things where it's not worth being divisive about. I have a, person, a friend at work who's also a Christian. He absolutely opposes my view on this, and that's fine. But you know what? He's the most encouraging person at work I've ever met. He tells everybody, I, I, don't, I can't even give you an example, everybody he's encouraging to, to them. He's all, hey, you did a great job today. Hey, you did this today. That was great. Hey, thanks for your help today. I mean, he, great encourager. We just don't agree on some points, and that's fine. 
So Jude's three points about these angels. One is they did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. What this means is they left their angelic sphere, which is the heavenly realm, to go down to the earthly sphere, which is where we live. And what they did is they cohabitated with the daughters of men, and there was an unnatural sexual union that produced unnatural offspring, which is the titanos or the um, men of renown that it talks about. Now, what it did was it created a hybrid human angel creature that was prolific at that time. Now, when it says in Genesis 6-9 that Noah was perfect in his generations, what I believe that means is that his human genetics were untainted by any of the, that, those in the angelic sphere. It was perfect. It wasn't contaminated at all. In fact, I believe the reason for these angels interacting with men and daughters of men in the first place was Satan trying to infect the human race so that the Messiah could not be born to begin with. Satan knew exactly that the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 was against him. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He knew that prophecy from the beginning. So all at once, he was trying to thwart that. He was trying to uh, destroy that possibility. If you look in Genesis 4.1, when Eve is giving birth to Cain and Abel, and Abel is born, she says, I don't remember exactly how, what she says, but essentially this one will save us from our troubles. She was believing that Abel was the one through whom the Messiah would come. But then Cain went and killed Abel. And then it was Seth that it was supposed to come through. And then when Noah's father, or when Noah was born, his father said, this one is going to bring us rest. I forget exactly how he put it. But again, insinuating that Noah was going to be in the prophetic uh, line of the Messiah. And if you look through the Old Testament, there's many places where the Jews are uh, oppressed, even through, all through history. And that's Satan trying to thwart God's plan for Israel. He already tried to thwart God's plan for the Messiah. It didn't work. And now he's trying to destroy how Jesus plans to come again. Now, second thing about these angels... He has kept them in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. So once the flood wiped out the product of this union, a natural union, God uniquely imprisoned these angels who sinned. And we don't ever see them again. Uh, they are in a place, according to Second Peter, is called Tartarus, which is the deepest place of confinement in hell. Um, it's not to be confused with the abyss, which is a different place, according to some commentaries. But anyway... So he had a unique uh, imprisoning system for them. Now, the next thing is they are going to be kept there until Judgment Day. And this is going to be the final judgment after the millennial reign of Christ where these people, these angels will be judged. Now, two things we learned from these angels is that one time, at one time, these angels stood in the immediate presence of God. And these false teachers who come in they are in the presence of people who serve the true God who most likely have Christ shining out of their lives. So these people have a positive influence, just as the angels had the ultimate positive influence, and yet they still chose uh, to reject God and follow Satan instead. But it also warns us that we have to continue walking in Jesus. Again, contending is a continual thing. If the past spiritual experience of these angels didn't guarantee their future spiritual state, 
then neither does ours. We need to keep walking and be on guard and contending against those who would be contentious and against us. Now, example three also has a lot of controversy around it. It has to do with the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's controversial because of the why of God's judgment. In Ezekiel, it talks about their judgment being pride and arrogance and not feeding the poor and all these things. But at the same time, if you read Jude, it doesn't bring any of those things up. It talks about a sexual sin. And if you're looking at verse 6, you see that angels had an unusual and unnatural union with the daughters of men. In verse 7, it says, in a similar way or in like manner. So the sin that he's referring to is something that is unnatural in its sexual immorality. There's sexual immorality where it's just outside of marriage, and that happens. But this is different. In fact, the Greek, which it's something to the effect of sarcos heteros, implies that it's not men and women just being immoral that it's an unnatural state. Because men and women is the natural state. That's how God designed us. The unnatural state would be men and men and women and women. And it's a sin. Now, the problem that I have is that we tend to single it out as if it's the worst possible sin in the world, and it's not. It's not any worse than lying is. I'm sure all of us have lied. I know I have. And it puts it on the same level in 1 Corinthians 6 as everything else. Let me read that for you real quick. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse is also key, though. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Once a person becomes a Christian, all those old things, those are swept away. You may have been a drunk. Now you're saved by grace. You may be given to that, but that's not what defines you. Your identity is in Christ. It's the same thing with anybody who's given to that urge, that homosexual desire. They may have that. That doesn't make them practicing. And if they follow Christ and they're rejecting that, they shouldn't be defined by that. They're defined by who they are in Christ, just as all of us are. Now, I say this knowing full well that people at work will listen to this. And I work, without a dozen, I work with about a dozen people who are this way. And you know what? They are some of the hardest workers I've ever worked with. And you know what? I... All I do is try to be an example and a witness to them. I don't condemn them. What they're doing is definitely wrong. And if they asked me outright if I, said, if I thought it was a sin, I would absolutely say yes. And one of them has. And she still works with me. She still talks to me. She still greets me. I think she's hungry. Because I think she's still searching for God and she still wants it. And you know what? It's just 
showing them grace and not being condemning as if they're doing something, as if they're a worse off sinner than we are. <clears throat> so the lesson from these three examples, did I say all three? Yeah, from these three examples is that God knows how to judge sin and he's going to judge sin. And these current false teachers are not going to escape judgment because those deserving of judgment in the past did not escape. And we know God is just. And it may seem like they're getting away with it now, but they're not going to get away with it in the long run. I'm going to cover verse 8 real quick. It says in verse 8, In the very same way on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, Jude begins his first by calling them dreamers, and he has one of two implications. The first is that he's either referring to the idea that maybe they were kind of out of touch with reality, which I don't think that's that one. But it's more likely that these people were claiming to have prophetic dreams where God was guiding them, because the only other place that's mentioned in the New Testament is in Acts, where God is the one giving people dreams and visions. Now... What these people, these false teachers are doing is claiming vision from God, claiming direction from God, and it's always going to be for a selfish reason. I was reading an email from the Berean Call, and there's an evangelist named Jesse Duplantis. I don't believe he's a Christian. I believe he's a false teacher. But he told his congregation that God told him to trust him for a Falcon X jet. That is a $54 million jet. And he thought that if God called them or led them, they could help him get that jet. This is, you know, despite the fact that he has three other private jets. So these, these people are going to claim to have knowledge from God, to claim direction from God. But everything about what people claim, anything about what I claim or Pastor Bill claims or any teacher it should always be measured by the word because that is your one standard. It is the canon of a rule above everything else. And if we have disagreements about what I've taught on, that's fine. As long as it's not a core value, as long as it's not Christ's death and resurrection, as long as it's not about those essentials, we can disagree. And I'm still going to love you as a brother or sister. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're searching for the truth and that we're defending the truth and contending for it. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and we're going to do communion today. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, there are so many people out there, either willingly or just because they're human, who would want to take us away from the life that we have in you, from the fulfillment that we have only in you. I pray, Lord, you would help us to be contenders, that we would be continually fighting. There's going to be times where we get tired, but, Lord, our strength in all contending comes from you alone. There's nothing we can do without you. Lord, fill us with your spirit as we go out today. And, Lord, as we take your communion, help us to remember exactly what it means. 
and what it represents. In Jesus' name.